Welcome to Fast Growth Stories, the straight-talking guide for entrepreneurs who want to grow quickly and secure funding. Brought to you by EHE, where entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Fast Growth Stories. I've got two brilliant guests with me today. I'm joined by familiar face. Guy, welcome, Guy. How are you? Hi, Nari. All good, thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, yeah, after the bank holiday. Always a bonus. Was it three in May this year, which is a yeah, a Billy bonus? Was it four? Anyway, either three. way. We were just talking about is is a bonus unless you're an entrepreneur or self-employed, in which case it's maybe not not such. Well, a I, I was on the phone to an American at nine o'clock last night, so uh, it doesn't oh. always work. <laughs> Brilliant. We're joined by a contact colleague of yours guy, Dan Ironit. So I'm delighted to have Dan with us. I know he's really well qualified and experienced to talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. But Guy, I thought I'd just hand over to you, just if you could give us a bit of a, an intro into where you guys met and then Dan could introduce himself, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a typical network connection really where, you know, I, as you know, I've done a few books either personally or with the companies I work with through Right Business Results. Ivan Meekin, who works at Right Business, made the connection and basically said, you guys need to chat. Dan is a tech journalist and entrepreneur. And we, we had a conversation, got on, and hence the podcast. And I think really, to add any kind of detail to that, I think Dan's probably best, you know, given us a, an update on exactly what he's been up to over the past decade or so. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. I know you've got a packed schedule this week. Probably no as we all have, I've been lost today. So, so yeah, we great, Dan. If you could give us a bit of a, a background into yourself, what what you've been doing, what you're currently doing. Sure. What I do now is very similar to what I've always done, I guess, which is is storytelling. I've I've always been involved in storytelling in some way, and I found my way to that through journalism. And I was largely a, a technology journalist for many years, reporting on you know the latest developments in tech, but also writing features about leadership in that space too which inevitably translated into business. You know, you'd inevitably get involved in how the business worked, some of the finances behind it and other sorts of topics as well. I did a load in sustainability. I used to run a publication on that as well, quite a lot around the crypto space too. And I get, I guess I get involved in lots of different ventures now. So my main focus, I guess, is venture marketing, helping companies to get things off the ground and things out of the door, products out the door and so on. But the the way we do that, I guess, differs depending on what kind of company they are. You know, if they're a scale-up, obviously they're looking for that way to go and do that kind of work. If they're a mid-size, they're just looking to be, you know, to get known and to get more credibility in the market. And if they're a huge global, you know, it's all about that massive global impact and, you know, getting getting known for that sort of stuff. So they've got very different sort of agendas. But I work with all kinds of companies like that. All of them are pretty much in the in the tech space though. Brilliant. Thank you. Really, really interested. And obviously one of the things, and I was delighted to have you on because when I was having a look through your your background, obviously I think we both have a marketing hat on and you approach storytelling from a journalist point of view. And, and my background is probably more from a brand point of view. But one thing that comes back to it is the story for brands and founders that the, and the way they tell that for their kind of stakeholders and marketing is so hugely important. And tech businesses is no different, really, is it? So just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and why why you think it's so important. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I just got back from Finland. I did a, I just I was just running a workshop in the forest for... A group of execs of a huge global tech company, a fortune listed tech company, 
And the topic was sustainability, actually. And sustainability is becoming, well, it's, it is, it's always been important, but it kind of goes up and down in terms of the media agenda. But this time, I don't think it's going away. I think it's here to stay, especially when you've got things like droughts and, you know, the more environmental pressure that there is, or, you know, the price of energy and so on, the more pressure seems to come onto technology companies about what they're doing about that. And the really interesting thing about the exec around some of these topics, and it could be anything, right? It could be it could be the product, it could be the vision, it could be you know whatever. But sustainability is a great example of where if the leadership team is not aligned and on the same page and thinking the same way and in touch and communicating and working as a team, all kinds of problems start to happen in the storytelling, and that can affect the share price. It can affect you know client confidence. It can affect all sorts of things and the team confidence itself. So. From the exec perspective, even internally, that story is so crucial to how things are communicated. Because ultimately, in a big B two B company, you know, it's really the, the the leaders who are out in the front talking about the story who are the the best ones to communicate it. But also, it's the it's, it's the sort of the weakest point and where the story can go wrong. It's not a comment. It's not something that's written. It's not something that's been thought about or considered. And so, therefore, you know, that story and that brand has to be lived and breathed by the leadership and the teams in order to make it work. So. Quite often we'll run a workshop like that. And what it does is highlight to everybody, oh, we haven't got a story right. We haven't got a message. You know, this is, this is not really working properly. We've got a brand that everybody knows us for, but actually we're not living up to that brand promise. So the story is kind of the glue that brings all of the, you know, the, the activity together between revenue marketing proposition and aligns the people around that internally. And of course, from an external perspective, what it should be doing is getting the customers on board, more engaged, more satisfied, if you're doing the job of listening to what the story should be at the same time. Real, thank you. And in terms of that approach, how do you challenge, how do you tackle that with a senior leadership team where there's probably, it's fair to say, it's always going to be one or two people that perhaps don't believe in the power of a story or perhaps see it as, as fluff? Because yeah. some people do, we've all we've all worked with those people, don't they do it, you know, they do exist. And We've got to get them on that on that page and living and breathing because, like you say, they do become the weak link, or it does become obvious where it's a marketing exercise rather than you know true core proposition. I, I think one of the worst things you can do is all go into a room and say, right, what should the story be as the first exercise? The first exercise we run is usually media training, and we get you know so we bring the cameras in and we bring the journalists in, and we then say, right, you're in a real media interview, you're going to get asked these questions. How do you respond? It, it really does make people focus. It sort of brings the egos down to earth a bit and it effectively makes sure that everybody's telling the same story. But if you've got everyone in the room watching that and listening to that and learning from it as you go, what you start to see is everyone sees the gaps. So they all want to go in the room after that and fix the story and get on the same message because they know, you know, they're all vulnerable if one of them is not, you know, is not a part of that, that, that journey. So. So I think making it very real is is sort of step number one. I think there you are know, really practical ways of doing it. The other way of doing it that we use a lot is we just go and talk to the most valuable customers. So the you know the clients who are spending tens, hundreds of millions of pounds on tech, what do they think of the company? What do they think of their experience? And the, the exec are generally extremely divorced from client opinion and client relationships to the point that you know there's these silos that occur in companies. They just become, I mean, we all know silos occur, but effectively they really work against the company in that situation. So by bringing a video recording of the client saying, I love this, I hate that, they've missed this opportunity for 50 million over here, you know, they could be doing all of these things. It kind of focuses everybody's gaze on what they could be versus what they are today. And I think if you could have put those two things together, 
challenge the exec on the, their storytelling and actually getting the clients to tell the company what they really want. You know, it doesn't take long to add up what you've really got to do about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And actually, I hadn't thought about it from introducing it from a media point of view, but you're right. You're almost showing them what the problem is, aren't you? And the fact that they're not, not all on the same page. And Guy, from your point of view, I know when you talk about businesses from an investment point of view, you always introduce it from the story. I don't know whether that's a conscious decision, but we always talk about the story and the background of what they're trying to do. And the, all the kind of financials comes much later on, doesn't it? Yeah, we get hundreds of, of pitch decks. And, you know, in my opinion, what a pitch deck should do is, is tell the story as best it can in a, some kind of PowerPoint. But it's all got to align. It's all got to kind of, it's got to be a smooth story. So, and it's quite hard to do in a pitch deck. So, you know, one of the things that we do when we work with companies is help them refine that pitch deck. So there is the story. It has got a start, kind of middle and an end. And also, you mentioned the finances. The, the finances have got to tell exactly the same story as the pitch deck. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Quite often, when we get pitch decks in, the finances are almost divorced from the actual pitch deck, and, yeah. and actually, the, the finances tell a different story to the the one that's trying to be portrayed in the pitch deck. So, you know, it's our job to help the the entrepreneurs to get the story right. And for me, the story always starts with the team. You know, what's the background? What they've done? You know, why are they going to work really well together? Because you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the right team to implement it, it's not going to work. So we always start with the team. We always tell the, as best we can in a one or two slides, tell the story of those people so that people understand that they are experts in the domain and that, you know, all the roles are either fulfilled or we know who's going to fill them once the investment comes in. Then we kind of move into, you know, what the product is, what, what problem it's trying to solve, why it's going to solve it, how it's going to solve it. And then you weave the, the finances into that kind of story. So yeah, pitch deck is absolutely the story of the background of the people involved and then how this whole thing's going to roll out and the finances have to match that same thing. I th- I, I, you know, it's a really good point. I think the, the finances are almost the most flexible bit of it because. You know, they're the bit that change on a weekly on a week to week basis. You know, they're the thing that on the modeling side of things and on the reality side of things, you know, they're the thing that never they're never the same as they were the week before because you're always learning something yeah. and and you might need to adapt and so on. And it's and it, I think it's a, it's a really good point because you know the pricing, even pricing changes or partner models change or whatever. And you know, you see a lot of companies go out of software as a service. But actually, they're a field sales company, or they might even have a consultative element to what they do, and they're not charging for it, right? And and I I totally agree, with guy. You know, there's that there's that element of no one really knows what the answer to the financial model is until it's really put into practice and it's tested well and truly. And that, that's the bit that takes the time and the money, really. You know, the story's the bit that's got to bring it all together while that testing goes on. All too often, we get pitch decks in that are basically sales brochures for the product or the service. And that isn't what investors are looking for. Investors are looking to understand that the team can deliver, that the product's got a market, it's got a meaning, it's got a value, and that the money they invest is going to be 10 times in the next four years kind of thing. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's what they're looking for. And that is all about the story every time. Dan, I'd be interested to hear your, your view on this. You know, after listening to what you just said, I was thinking back to my previous company and, we definitely had a story. I, I probably wasn't aware of it, but you know, we 
back in probably 2010, we started to write blogs. And then when, you know, that, as that evolved, we started to do conferences, we were doing user groups. And effectively what we're doing, our whole team, the engineers in particular, we didn't have a sales and marketing team, actually. What we did was the engineers, they didn't realize this because it was great for them, but they were our sales and marketing team because they were talking about stuff they were passionate about, about what we're doing in the company, who we're working with, you know, the kind of technologies we're playing with and that kind of thing. And, and I could see how that in a conference and as a series of blogs was telling the story about our company, our people and what we did, why we did it and how we did it. So the, the whole story thing is really, really interesting thing. And I think if you think of that up front, if you think of the, the way you're going to project your company as a story, then that's a really good starting point. And I kind of wish I'd done that originally. You know, we kind of fell into what we did. We didn't really plan it. We fell into it. We saw it beginning to work. And we, we, we kind of catalyzed on that and, and rolled it out uh, in a more, you know, meaningful way. Whereas I think if we thought about the story and then how we're going to tell that story, it would have been a bit more planned. Yeah. I think the story is the thing that hangs, you know, quite often I see that pattern all the time where you get a very good bunch of engineers or tech guys or even business exec and they've come up with a proposition or a product rather that solves a problem or a service that solves a problem, but that's not a proposition. And, and even then the proposition isn't really the story. You know, there's a story that kind of wraps things together as a company, but then the proposition should be a natural sort of fit for what that company really does. The product development or the product bit is almost the beginning of the journey. You know, it's the bit that, okay, it takes loads of time. There's a load of brains going behind it, but unless that engages with people in some way, you're never going to make the sales, right? So that, you know, the thing with engagement these days is, the channels keep changing. You know, it's a movie. Marketing's, you know, it's a game of moving goalposts consistently. Different channels. COVID's a great example of that. You know, events didn't work. The typical sort of B two B channels just completely failed, and everybody moved over to digital. But the stories are the same. And you know, anyone who had a good story already lined up kind of didn't need to think that one through too much. But it companies that are sort of reliant on product and channel too much really had to step back and think about how on earth they were going to market. So I think, you know, the, ch- the channel side of things and channel marketing, people get very f- sort of wrapped up on numbers and leads and so on. And that, all of that stuff's really important. But unless the glue is there in the first place of, right, what are we going to be? How do we work as a team together? How are our customers going to perceive us? What do we want them to think of us? You know, all those sorts of things that often, and, and i tell you one question that, that, that really doesn't get answered a lot is when we do our work, you know, we go and talk to our clients, or sorry, we go and talk to our clients' clients, Find out where, you know, where they're, where they're work, where things are working, where they're not, where the money's been left on the table. And when you bring it back and talk to them, there's very different opinions about what the company should be or is doing or what the story actually is. And then you look at, look at the competition and see how they compare. And those three things give you a very good perspective on what the, what the brand is, what the position is and what it could be. And the one thing they get, you know, they'll the write a mission, they'll write a vision, all this sort of stuff. But. The thing that they really tend to miss is what's their character? Who are they? What are they all about? You know, what makes them tick? Actually, what gets them into work every day? What's that commitment? And I think if you can nail that, you've got something really special to tap into there that often gets ignored. And I think B2B sort of doesn't ask that question as much as a, as a consumer brand potentially, you know, which is all about personality. The B2B stuff tends to get missed quite a lot because we just look at it as more functional. 
And I think the big opportunity is in defining the character of a brand that when you get that, when you get that, and then you get the story that comes out of it. Man, that's really powerful. We've seen some enormous things from that. Well, thank you. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think traditionally people always thought that B2B didn't need a story. It was much more kind of just communicate the the tech or the proposition. But actually, B2B, I always say to the businesses I work with, it's still people to people, essentially, and they still want to know that that story. And it's really important. Yeah. From your kind of point of view, Dan, when is the ideal time to kind of sit down and really flesh out that that story? Is it Free going for investment, or you know, and how does that play into the kind of role of fast growth as well? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, each company's got its different events that they're trying to create. And I mean, for for a big company, it's often you know there's a there's a strategic initiative they're trying to get across. So, a global company, global tech, there's a strategic initiative they've got to hit, and obviously, targets sit behind some of that. But in order to hit the targets, they've got to launch something or do something or be positioned and seen in this way. By investors, by analysts, and by clients, and that's a that's a big piece of orchestration work. But it, it's all tied around the story. So they tend to be quite intensive pieces of work around an event that's trying to be tri- you know that a company's trying to trigger in order to increase evaluation or be seen in a certain way, you know, position capabilities in a different way. Often it's to sort of get away from the cheaper side of the market into the more valuable bit of the market. I think the mid-sized companies, those guys are constantly trying to reinvent themselves is a much more revenue-based game, I think. So actually, you know, there's a much more direct relationship between a mid-sized company and its clients than there would be with the exec of a large company and, you know, and its client base. So, you know, the events tend to be much more, and often they're privately owned, but often they're privately backed as well. So privately backed by, you know, private equity. So the last quarter of those investment holdings in the portfolio tend to be when the private equity company's thinking, Okay, we've done all we can on the cost saving. We've done all the clever financial stuff, but now we need a story. We need to make this thing look like it's worth more than you know. It's got it's, it's maybe five x, not two x. What we're gonna you know what we're gonna get for it when we exit. And I think for the scale ups, I mean that's a really interesting question. The story is the thing. In my, I mean, I would say this, but this is where I always begin things. The story is where you start because you're actually trying to do. What are you actually trying to help people with? Where are you going to go with this whole thing? That's that's where to begin. However, it doesn't always work like that. Some investor readiness programs involve that storytelling bit, but more often than not, it's the point at which they go, right, we, we need to scale up. We don't know how to do this. I go to market won't work if we just put the right elements together. We need something to bind it. You know, How do we tell the story to the market? Why are the analysts going to care? So I think answering that question of so what is really the big one. You know, If you can't answer the so what around what you're doing, you know the story's not right. And in any of those scenarios, really. So I think that's probably when we get the phone call. Yeah. I mean, great that they recognise that and make the phone call. Because from everything you've said today, obviously you have a really robust process to get them. And like you say, it does become then the secret source if you can get that that story right. In terms of, obviously, we've talked a lot about the story today, but you've worked with lo- loads of entrepreneurs, taking them to market, et cetera. Are there, other than kind of the story, what are some of the common things that you think they don't get right that potentially affects their opportunity for fast growth? Anything else that's not quite, you know, things they need to look look for or improve on? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things. I mean, really, you know, it, <laughs> there's, there's hundreds actually. Yeah. But the, <laughs> if you were to sort of, you know, I think alignment is the one that really lets people down a lot of the time. And I think when you look at typical, you know, the way companies are structured, there's a leader, there's an exec team that, lead, you know, that, that, that answers to that leader. And then there's some people beneath that. And that sort of hierarchical triangular 
system, I think doesn't necessarily help people's minds, you know, connect with each other as well as it could. You know, you're almost a bit divorced from everybody. Sometimes that has been a good thing in the past, but when you're looking for fast growth, you need really good communication and really good alignment on where things are going to be. And I think, you know, the, the, the internal communication side of things, it's not, it, it depends. I mean, everybody's got a different leadership style, you know, whether it's that hierarchical approach or whether it's more collaborative, doesn't really matter. But the point is, if the comms are poor and there's not that frequency of update, you know, from everybody and, and people, everybody's listening, I think that's when I see things go wrong most, where, you know, a different silo will say, I'm doing this, that we're responsible for this, screw you guys. And, and then, you know, someone else over here is trying to do, you know, something completely different. They're not really working around the common goal. So teamwork is where people often go wrong. And I think when we put people on the spot sometimes or we show them what the client feedback is, it makes them realize, okay, we haven't really worked as a team here, have we? You know, so I think that that's probably number one. I think maybe number two is that in technology, people seem to use as a defensive point of view or their main, the main strategy for communications is what the features of a product are, features of a proposition are instead of the wider story and the wider benefit and so on and the wider value. And I think when you start to talk about things like value creation, which is a term that's used in investment a lot of how you increase the value of a company by you're doing a sort of invisible, you know, black magic stuff like storytelling that you can't really measure as easily as you can say a lead gen program. What you find is that they tend to focus much more on the features. So it just disengages the, you know, any kind of executive buyer, any C-level buyer, is not fussed about features. They want to know what problem's going to be fixed. Can you do it or not? Are you capable? Is it is the price all right for everyone else? You know, in the company. Okay, fine. Not can it do this, this, and this? Has got these bells and whistles. And tech again and again tells this story about about bells and whistles as opposed to what you're really going to get at the end of it. Thank you. You just made the investment process sound super simple as well. Can you do it? What do they get? How much is it going to cost? Okay. Best. <laughs> well, ultimately, yeah, but obviously there's a bit more to it in, in a lot of cases than that. Yeah. But the, you know, ultimately when it comes back to the exact, that's the question they're asking. You know, yeah. can we trust these guys? Can they do the job? Are, are they capable? Will they talk to us? Will they be flexible? Is the price all right? You know, we yeah. do a lot of work in the bigger companies, you know, around bids. So we've been involved in, you know, these, some of the bids that go through on huge programs of sort of, you know, up to $500 million sometimes, you know, of, of these, these deals are worth. And quite often, even these, I mean, I'm talking like the fortune companies now, massive companies that should know better. They misspell client names in their executive summaries. They talk about themselves. They talk about the features of what they've got, you know, why you need this product, why you need that product. Not about, we understand you as a company, we know that this is where you're trying to get to. We understand these are the challenges you've got within that. Our point of view is you should tackle them with these things. And one of the ways you could do that is with this, but we think there's a number, you know, it's kind of a, a more considered, smart, high-level approach and a more of a consultative approach. I think in, in tech, for some reason, because everybody's got scale in mind, they seem to forget that there is a consultative human, you know, a, approach that tends to work better than a, than a tra transactional you know, approach to selling things. And time and time again, I've seen it. And I can say, even in the biggest companies with the biggest deals at stake, they make the same mistake there. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. I think what you've done today, Dan, I've really, I've really enjoyed everything that you've said and I, I really resonate with it. But I think what I particularly like is you've taken something that is tricky for people. It, you know, it's not, you can't just go and get your story straight without some 
expert input, but you've you've made you've really simplified that process and you've articulated brilliantly how important it is. I think anybody that's listening to this that feels that they perhaps need some help with their story or need some help with their kind of growth and go-to-market strategy. What's the best ways of, of getting in touch with you? And we'll pop those details into the description. <laughs> Thank you. That's really kind. Well, the first thing I guess is to have a look at the website, which is mm-hmm. talejo.com. That's T-O-L-L-E-J-O.com. And then you can find me on LinkedIn and just reach out to me on that. If you want, write to me at dan at com. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Dan. And Guy, anything else you wanted to add before we, we wrap up today? I know a lot of this will have really resonated with you because you're a big, big advocate of getting the story right and buying the people rather than the tag. Yeah, I think a couple of things really. One is we've not really talked about it, probably haven't got time to go into detail on it, but I think culture is very important in tech teams and you can you can create a culture around the stories that you're telling and that way, that, that, you know, Dan talked about bringing teams together around the story. And for me, that's exactly how you do that through nurturing the, the right kind of culture and the right kind of behaviors and making sure everybody's on the same page. And then the other thing that kind of came out of the conversation today was that storytelling is important for three big reasons. There's probably other reasons, but three big reasons. One is that internally gets you all on the same page. Secondly, the right story will help with sales and is easier to market. And then the third one is that if you get your story right and put it out there, then you're more likely to get noticed. And you know, investors are more likely to come to you and acquirers are more likely to come to you. It's always better than rather than searching for investors and acquirers, that making the right noise with the right story in the marketplace get them to approach you and you're on the front foot at that point. Real, thank you. Yeah, and lots of things that, that we've talked about before or touched on before, but never in, in this much detail. So thank you, Guy, very much. And thank you very much, Dan, for giving up your time this morning to, to talk to us. Hopefully everybody's found that useful. Like I said, we'll pop the, the details into the podcast description as well. So if anybody wants to find out any more information, they can get in touch with you. And don't Amazing. forget, obviously, we do have the other episodes in the Fast Growth series. So there are lots of other things that entrepreneurs can do or listen to to help them on their fast growth path. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks, Larry. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fast Growth Stories. Please remember to subscribe and review and visit the ehe.team website for the latest on fast growth and funding.